you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 4 once again this week. We're going to continue working through uh, James 4, and this afternoon uh, we'll be finishing up the chapter. But this morning, uh, the title of the sermon is just simply the same as last week, only with part two on it. Uh, But again, uh, evaluating our allegiance. You know, there's an old ditty that goes, "It, it needs more skill than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. In a similar vein, Leonard Bernstein was once asked which instrument was the most difficult to play. He thought about it for a moment and then replied, the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. You know, if you know anything about music and orchestras, I've, I've actually probably, heard, I think I've heard this before, it's interesting to think that everybody wants to be the person who's the first violinist, but the second violinist is just as important for that orchestra. Now, as we continue our evaluation this week of where our allegiance lies, last week we looked at the negative side of things, how James is, is challenging the, the people, the recipients of this letter, the believers he's writing to, the Christians he's writing to, and he's basically saying, listen, because of your quarreling, because of your fighting, because of your selfish ambition and your selfishness, you are in hostility toward God. In fact, he calls them adulteresses in verse 4. See, when we live out life in a selfish, and selfish way, and we put ourselves in front of God, we are, in, we are in hostility to God. And something needs to change. In James, even verse 5, he says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. In verse 6, our text this morning, he comes to this word, and we'll look at the, let's just read verses 6 through 10. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. See, just as hard as it can be to find someone to be the second fiddle, so it is often hard for us as Christians to not be the one in control. We struggle to not have the last say in a situation. We struggle to perhaps stop concentrating on our failures resulting in a self-deprecating mindset about life. We struggle to agree that someone may truly know how to accomplish something better than we do. We struggle when we have sinned and admitting that sin to others and to God. See, God hates pride. God hates pride. God desires to use the humble. It is interesting that James in this part of the letter has gone from discussing the sinfulness of selfish ambition. He's gone and and he's talked about one's pleasures being the source of fighting and quarrels among Christians. The idea of improper prayer, he mentions. And it is after all this, he explains in a direct statement 
that God resists the proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our big idea this morning is that humility and submission to God are foundational for the Christian's repentant allegiance to God. A big concept, big truth this morning is that of repentance. Humility and submission to God are foundational for the Christian's repentant allegiance to God. See, when we're living in selfish ambition, our allegiance isn't to God. We're not living loyal to how God desires us to live. We're not living Christ-like in our lives. So when the Christian chooses to live out humility, they more naturally will obey and live out the commands that God has given to us, to us and specifically here in James 4, 7-10, through 10, which is full of imperatives. Full of imperatives here. So our passage this morning, we see this transitional statement from James in in verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The conjunction that James uses here, but, is a beautiful word. I love it when the the writers of Scripture go through and there's a bunch of negative. And then we see the the conjunction, but. Paul does this in the passage that we are seeking to memorize from. In, in, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, he says, but God. Speaking of his grace in the act of salvation. Now James isn't speaking directly of, of salvation, initial salvation here. He's writing to believers. And so he's, got done, he's, he's, he's chastising the, the recipients for their sin, for their selfish ambition, for their pride, for their arrogance. And, he's, and, and if you were to just stop there, that would be pretty depressing. I mean, if, if every message you heard, you came in on Sunday morning, all you heard was how horrible you were, with no way of getting out of it, how many of you would keep coming back? Probably not very many of us, to be honest. Whether right or wrong, we probably wouldn't want to come back. You're not going to go join a church where all you get is the negative. How horrible you are, how horrible you are. Because you know what? God's word doesn't just do that. God himself doesn't just tell us how bad we are, though he tells us that a lot. And James here uses this conjunction and says, but here's the way to change. God gives grace. God gives grace. No, Paul references this concept in Romans chapter 6. He mentions it, and I'm jumping ahead in my notes, I think, but, uh, but he mentions it in chapter 6. That, that God's grace isn't there so that we can just keep on sinning. But God's grace, it is God's grace that allows us to live righteously, Titus tells us in Titus chapter 2. And James here is writing and says, but God gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, and he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. And he says, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we continue to go on, and and we'll see that verses 7 through 10 are actually bookended by the concept of submission and humility. All these imperatives are are bookmarked, bookmarked, bookended with the idea of, 
of humility and submission. So just as a refresher, as we continue to think through the concepts of humility and submission, it would be good to get a refresher of the idea of humility. In the Old Testament, the uh, common word used for the word uh, for humility is, really carries the basic sense of to crouch or to bend low, to fall low. It, 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 is to exp- it expresses often submissiveness and really sometimes a, a condition of poverty. In the New Testament, there's a variety of words that the Greek New Testament uses to convey the idea of humility and modesty, and, and modesty of character. It really, if you want to summarize all of the words, you could really boil it down to this idea of being brought low. That humility is this idea of being brought low, to, to be humbled, to be lowly. You know, there's a, a passage of Scripture in the New Testament that helps really describe and really give us a wonderful example of humility. And that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then jump down to verse 3, it says, Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So don't be proud, don't be selfish, don't live in selfish ambition, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So Paul is telling us to live in humility. Not to merely look out for our own personal interests, but also what? The interests of others. Now, where is this described? Where is it really illustrated? Verse 8 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Being found, speaking of Christ here, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So Christ chose to not use aspects of his deity and humbled himself to the will of the Father. So what is humility? It's, it's, it's submitting ourselves to the will of God. It's bringing ourselves and putting ourselves under the, the will of God. It's putting ourselves under God. So humility then can be defined as choosing others in God's will over my own. Pride then would be a self-inflated view of oneself and promotion of one's own will over others and God. So we're going to evaluate this morning our allegiance to God. Where, where, how are we living? Are you living a humble and submissive life before God? And James here is really not just, he doesn't just talk about humility here. He really is, he uses this as a call to repentance. That God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So our first point this morning is that God's grace invokes a response to our sin. Because of God's grace, we ought to respond in a certain way. James gives insight to God's jealousy over his children, over his bride, the church, in verse 5. When the Christian chooses to align himself with the world and commit spiritual adultery, it makes God jealous. God desires a close relationship with his church and he desires a close relationship with you, with every Christian. 
So this morning, Christian, are there areas of your life that are causing God to be jealous? Are you disregarding God's word for your own selfish gain and pleasure? You may say that God's expectations are just too high. I can't meet them. Well, if God is a jealous God and he's jealous over us and living in obedience to him, do you think he's going to make it impossible for us to obey him? No. What does he do? He gives grace. And it's a greater grace. See, the truth is, God's grace is so much greater than our sin. Romans 6, 1 through 5, again, referencing that. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. See, this helps us see the power of God's grace. His grace is greater than our sin. God is rich in mercy and grace and love and wants to supply it to all of his children. All of his children. And he wants to do so willingly. Augustine said this about God's grace. God gives what he demands. James brings God's grace into the discussion through quoting Proverbs 3.34, which says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. Yes, James uses a little different wording, but the truth being that God opposes the proud. Are you in opposition to God this morning? Is pride ruling in your life? Or is there areas of your life? It might not be as an all-encompassing thing, but are there areas of your life where you're just, it's all about you? That you're not willing to submit that area of your life to the Lord? to his lordship. So I pose the question, are you humbly submitting that situa- the situation to God? See, the arrogant and the proud will only receive resistance and opposition from God. You may be sitting here this morning and you've been frustrated that some aspects of your life are just not going well. They're not going like you, you think they should be going. Are you getting upset at God? Are you trying to fix the situation on your own? Are you truly humbling yourself before God and realizing that it's God's grace that's going to get you through? See, the neat thing about this passage is that God's grace says, therefore God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is God's grace that continues to help the humble repent, live a repentant life. If we want God's sustaining grace in our life, we must humble ourselves before God. So as we think of the, the truth of humility, as we think about the fact that God's grace invokes this, it should invoke us to live a humble life before God. And it is humility and submission 
that aids in our repentant attitude towards sin. Look at verse 7. So as he says, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble in verse 6. He then immediately goes to and gives this imperative, submit therefore to God. So because God gives grace to the humble, James now says, submit therefore to God. Rather than being in opposition to God, rather than living in a way that is, that is in hostility to God, submit your will your thoughts, your actions, submit them to God. And then we see a list of imperatives, and then he again summarizes verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. So we see four groups uh, that many have put these into really a, a group setting. And there's really, you could really put these into four kinds of groups. Now that's not... It doesn't change whether you put them in four groups or not. It doesn't change the meaning of the text. For the sake of outlining and, and understanding the text just with flow of thought, we're going to go ahead and group these into four groups. And the first that we see here is the idea of resist and draw. Then we see wash and purify. And we see the, the idea of grieve, mourn, and wail. And then the laughter into mourning and joy into gloom. In fact, Peter himself in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9, gives a statement similar to what James does in verse 6. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, at the end of the verse, it says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he tells us in verse 8 to what? Well, verse 6 then says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. God is mighty. That what? He may exalt you at the proper time. Verse 8, Be sober-spirited. Be serious-minded. Be on the alert. Because why? Your adversary, the devil, is roaring around like a lion, seeking whom to devour. And verse 9, Peter says this, Resist him firm in your faith. So we see similar concepts that Peter, so, and Peter, by the way, wrote years after James. Some 15, they estimate some 15, 20 years that Peter, first, Peter's first letter was written after James. So this truth of humility, of, God, of, of being preached, is not just something that was just mentioned by James, but it carries on and through, and God carries it through. So it wasn't just the scattered that James was writing to that came to understand this truth. So the truth of the connection here of God's grace, humility, and pride clearly spanned throughout the early Christian church and carried a sense of a call to flee sin and live righteously. Why do we humble ourselves? Because we need to be right with God. The first thing that he talks about, submit therefore to God. And what is the first thing he says here? He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We repent by resisting Satan and drawing to God. Resisting Satan and drawing to God. A theme comes to the forefront here and, and that is repentance. James has been discussing the selfish living that causes quarrels and fights 
and ultimately hostility toward God. And in these commands, he, he begins with the idea of submission and he ends again with humility. Repentance can be seen and it begins by resisting the influence of Satan in your life. Are you resisting Satan and his influence? Are you resisting the wickedness that comes around you? And it's easy for us to say yes sometimes on, on a macro level because yes, I'm, I, oh, all these big... The question is, what about all those little things that sin, the influence of sin and the influence of, a, of the worldliness that James talks about earlier that, that to be friendship of the world, there, there's that worldliness. We need to repent from living in that worldliness and, and to do that we need to resist this idea of resist is the idea of, of standing your ground, not giving in. And you know the neat thing about this is James gives a promise at the end of this. He says, listen, here's the fact, that if you resist Satan, he will flee. And I don't know if this thought that came to mind as I was studying this is very theological, but I'm going to mention it. So this is my thought as I was reading this passage. Do you know how you have siblings and they're just trying to annoy the living daylights out of you? And, and you're choosing not to let it bother you, though I don't think how often we ever do that. But you're sitting there and you're, you're saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to have a bad attitude about this. You know what eventually often happens? Does that sibling keep bugging you over after a while? No because they're not getting any satisfaction out of it. It's not working. Now, I don't know how theological that understanding of this is. So please don't take it with a grain of salt. But you know, James is saying here, he says, resist the devil and he will flee. See, there's no middle ground in the Christian's battle. You can't straddle the fence it hurts. You can't. You either are standing for God or you're standing in sin. And the first aspect of, of repentance is actually standing firm and resisting sin. That as sin, you realize there's sin in your life, it's saying, I am going to say no to this sin and I'm going to stand firm against it. Christian, this morning, victory is possible. We don't have to live in sin. Satan's power can overcome the power, cannot overcome the power of God. We see that clearly illustrated for us by Christ in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. That there is victory. Satan cannot defeat the power of God. In fact, we see what? Satan flee there in Matthew 4. However, if pride is ruling you and you are not submitting to God, Satan and his influences will not flee. You are not only living as Satan wants you to live, you are in hostility toward God. The term draw, going to the second part of this, 
The term draw in the Old Testament often referred to approaching God in worship. And as I was studying this out, I, I, it, I first thought, that's what I thought of, drawing near to God. You think of coming before the temple, bowing before him, and this idea of worship. But if we completely take it that way, it really doesn't make sense because God doesn't worship himself, come to worship himself. If you look at the end of the verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He's not coming to worship us. So what is, what is James really kind of talking about here? Well, Hosea 12, 6 says this, Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. The idea of James, what James most likely is referring to here, see, the better understanding of here, is that God desires us to draw to him and submitting our life in repentance and righteousness. And he promises to restore us in Christ's likeness. And when we go to God in prayer, we are submitting our will to him where he is ready to hear us and ready to forgive us and ready to have us serve him. So we know that God draws near to us and his spirit intercedes for us. One commentator put it this way, that the drawing James speaks of is a wholehearted return to God. That we are drawing to God. There's a wholehearted turn. There's that repentance that takes place. You're resisting sin and you're drawing to God. You're, you're, you're running to God. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture that comes to mind when we think of this. And I think it's a good picture of this. The idea of worship is referenced with this language in the Old Testament in Hebrews. Once is most likely due to the context not what James is saying. Jesus has never changed his position in relation to his love for you. He never has. His love for us never changes. In Luke 15, we have the parable of the prodigal son. And if you really sit and read this passage, it really probably should bring tears to our eyes. And maybe you're here and you have. Maybe you, the story, the parable itself, you somewhat identify with an idea of, of a son, a father who has a son that has walked away from God or a, or, a, or a child who's walked away from God. And though that's not the main idea, it's not necessarily to do a one-for-one one in our lives in that concept, but it is a story that God gives and as we see this story, you have two brothers, right? They're given an inheritance. One chooses to stay home. And I don't, the Bible doesn't really say what he does with it. But the other one, like, yes, I, I get to go do what I want. Hey, I've got, all, I've got what I need. I'm going to go have fun now. He goes and has a ton of fun, quote-unquote. And all of a sudden, that well dries up. That money dries up. The riches, the, the joy, the pleasure, all of those things dry up. And he finds himself eating pig slop. And in that moment, he realizes his sin. He realizes, he says in Luke 15, he says that he had sinned, had sinned against God and against his father. 
And it is in that moment that he repents of that sin. He turns from it. And he goes home. And, and as, a, as a dad who has a son, and being a son, and there have been times where I have gone to my dad in tears. Can you imagine the joy of that father as he sees his wayward son coming home? What does he do? Look at Luke 15:20 says this. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. God draws near to us. His arms are there. But all too often, really kind of the grumpy older brother Oftentimes, we don't care about the pig slop or we completely ignore it and we justify the pig slop that we're, we're living in. We need to resist sin. We need to resist the devil and his influences. And we need to draw near to God. Part of re- having a repentant life is drawing near to God and not allowing sin to be in our lives. Another aspect of repentance is found in verse 8. The end of verse 8 says, So draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The prodigal son... Sorry, I actually had these verses up there for you. Helps if I actually look at my own notes. <laughs> but as you look at that verse in the prodigal son, we see that his father saw him, and the prodigal son understood the worldly filth he was living in. And he came to see the sin he had in his life. Christian, if we are going to live in harmony with God, we must live lives of godliness and not worldliness. If we're honest with ourselves this morning and before God, there are ways that worldliness creeps into our life in the smallest ways. And when we refuse to resist Satan and let the Spirit of God control our lives, we are choosing pride and hostility to God as a way of life. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 29, for our our God is a consuming fire. We need to stand in awe and fear God. Living in sin is not a good place to be. So James provides another imperative for repentance, and that is this, that we must cleanse our hands. Sin has polluted the world. Sin has polluted the world. And it has since Adam and Eve sinned. Since the fall, how do you view your sin this morning? 
How egregious do you see even the littlest, quote-unquote, as we sometimes quantify sin, the littlest thing? Do you see it as egregious before God? The frustration, frustrated remark driving down the road, You name it. See, sin is departing from godliness. And it doesn't matter the quote-unquote level of sin, but all sin is egregious to God. Sin hinders your fellowship. And we need to repent of our sin. We need to, to cleanse our lives from sin. And God does the cleansing, but there is an element that we go to God in asking Him to cleanse us. And part of our sanctification, our responsibility, is to choose to live righteously. And it is God's grace that teaches us to do that. God gives us his grace to repent. God's grace is greater. Christian conviction is dulled when spiritual callousness is present. See, when you go to get, not that I've ever done this, but when you go to get a pedicure and manicure, so ladies, if you want to correct my understanding of this, you can. When you go get a manicure or a pedicure, the process involves exfoliation of the dead skin scales. The purpose is to treat your hands, restore them to a healthier condition. In the store, in stores, you can buy a pumice stone that you can scrub your feet with to help soften and heal the callousness you may have on your feet. Christian conviction is dulled when spiritual callousness is present. When I, I, I had mentioned, I know in a previous sermon a few months ago or whatever, I mentioned how I took a mission trip to South America. And as I, we were playing soccer and things like that with all the natives, you know what they didn't, none of them wore? Shoes. And I'm like, how in the world do you run around without shoes in the jungle? And one time they were sitting there and we were sitting with them and, and I saw the bo bottoms of their feet. They, were like, they look like rocks. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, we should not be like that. Where we don't feel the results. Where we can't notice that we just stepped on a sharp rock. Spiritually. We cannot have hearts that are hardened. James demands that repentance take place in our life and part of that process is a cleansing and a purification. Christian, we cannot live in a par part of both worlds. You can't. There truly is no best with the ungodly but only the deceptive best. They may think they have a best way of living but they're just deceiving you. See, repentance involves both the inward and the outward. What the, as James is writing here, what they would have, the original under, readers of this letter would have understood is cleanse your hands, that would have referred to an outward, an external cleansing. There are things externally that we ought to cleanse. And also there's the internal. To purify your hearts, you double-minded in other words, the double-minded James is re reaching back to chapter 1. 
It's really the idea of a two-souled concept is really what the word literally means is two-souled. It's, it's really trying to live between two things. You can't make up your mind. James says in chapter 1, literally toss to and fro. We need to live in a single-minded allegiance to God. And then he comes to, and he really you can somewhat see a progression here in, in this idea of repentance. You see the idea of resisting, saying no to sin, and, and beginning to draw near to God. See, repentance really is a change of heart, a change of mind. It's a change of direction. Joel 2.12 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. See, the next aspect here is that our repentance displays a godly sorrow over sin. Joel is call, calling for Israel to repent from sin. James is calling the Christian under the inspiration from God to repent from their sin. Similarly, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This verse calls for believers to repent and describes the attitude and a heart behind repentance. It was one of sorrow without regret. Was, look at how James discusses this. Verse 9, Be miserable and mourn, and weep. Now if you just kind of read that without understanding the context, it's like, wow, what an imperative. God's telling me to be miserable. <laughs> A Christian, our sin should make us miserable. Sin is going to, should be making us feel miserable. And we should be sorrowful. We should weep over our sin. It should cause us to be Brokenhearted. See, repentance can be defined as a literal change of mind regarding sin and how one is act, going to act toward God. Repentance happens because of God's grace. Remember, God, James begins this entire section by specifying the power of God's grace and how it impacts the humble and submissive. Repentance says that humility and submission to God is the course of action and not pride and selfish ambition. When was the last time you were brought to tears over your sin? When was the last time that, maybe not literal tears, but there was just a huge burden and sorrow over your sin before God? We need to be broken. David, when you read through Psalm 51, don't you hear the brokenness? He, uh, he calls on God to restore to him a sweet spirit, a renewed spirit. He understood the egregiousness of his sin. Remember Peter? What happened when he came to full realization of what he did? The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. 
there is truly a mourning that accompanies true repentance. And I know God creates us all with different types of emotions and some are more naturally emotive than others. What about your heart? How sorrowful are you over your sin? And it's a godly sorrow. It's not, a, it's not this wailing without hope. See, how amazing is it that when Christ, one day Christ returns and you have very little to none to mourn over because you're constantly mourning over your sin. You're repenting of your sin. And when the day comes that the Lord returns, there's very little sin in our life. How amazing would that be? So with this godly sorrow, we see then also in verse 9 that we need to take it seriously. Sin is something serious. Part of repentance is taking sin seriously. It's not to be laughed at. When I first read this passage and studied this passage quite a few years ago, I was like, what, is he, what in the world is James talking about here? I didn't really get it. When he says here, let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy to gloom, sounds like a real fun Christian life. I have to walk around gloomy all the time? Well, clearly that doesn't match up with how God describes. Because what is, how does God describe the Christian life and tell us, command us to live according to Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So what is James saying? He's saying that we need to take sin seriously. We should not be laughing at sin. In Old Testament literature, laughter, this idea of laughter, which they would, have probably, they would have understood this as, is the idea of the fool. The fool in the Old Testament was someone who mocked Scripture and righteous living. Sometimes I, feel, I, I, I see, I think we as Christians, we, we fall prey to laughing at sin. In others' lives, in our own lives. See, if we're willing to laugh at it others, in others' lives, we're probably going to be more prone and open to attack in our own life. You know, there's a level of desensitization that happens in our lives as Christians. We can't let that happen. We need to see, view sin all the time, every time, as God views it. As heinous, as egregious. So this morning, do you find yourself stained by any specific sin in your life? See, the joy comes from having a right relationship with God. A repentant life. The world says that you can live joyfully in a certain way. God doesn't need to be a part of the picture. Sin really isn't a thing. Just live however you want. With whoever you want whenever you want, however you want. But we know that God has given us truths on how to live. 
And what James is telling us here in this passage is that we need to live repentant lives. Repentance has got to be a constant thing in our lives. Again, it is a change of thinking that we are drawing to God and fleeing sin. Are you drawing nigh to God this morning? Because he ends all of this with verse 10. Humble yourselves, be brought low, subject yourself in the presence of the Lord, and what? He will exalt you. He will raise you up. He will bring you up. He will help you live righteously. See, our, our, our Christian walk is not all dependent on ourselves. Yes, God gives us responsibilities, but God is there to help us. His grace is there. God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. He opposes the proud. So this morning, you and I need to understand that apart from God, we are spiritually low and poor. And we need God's grace to live righteously. We need God's grace to live submissively and humbly before him. We need to live repentant lives. We need to see sin seriously. Humility and submission to God are foundational for the Christian's repentant allegiance to God. So as we go forth this week and the week after, the months, years, may this be something that is true in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray that we would take sin seriously, that really the way we show our allegiance to you and not to the world, how we have the proper speech, how we don't live according to our own selfish ambition, we don't fight and quarrel with one another, is that we live and repent of the sin in our life, that we humble ourselves before you, and it is your grace that enables us to live repentant lives. May we live submissively and humbly before you. In your name we pray, amen.